Storgy, the online magazine for lovers of fiction. Check out our dystopian and horror anthologies along with specialized merchandise. All these and more are available on our website, storgy.com. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of the Comma Press podcast. I'm your guest host today, Sophie Hughes, literary translator and co-editor of Europa 28, writing by women on the future of Europe. For the first time, we're recording outside of our regular studio. Today finds us, well, at home, of course, as we launch the anthology virtually, but with no less real excitement. The current series of the Comma Press podcast focuses on futures, making Europa 28, writing by women on the future of Europe, a wonderfully apt talking point. The anthology brings together 28 prominent artists, activists, journalists, writers and scientists, one from each EU country, across generations and genres, to share their visions for the future of Europe, with either a piece of fiction or non-fiction. It includes also an introduction by the writer and founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, Laura Bates. So the brief we gave our contributors was short, deceptively simple, and no doubt familiar to any listener who hasn't been living under a rock for the last four years, and who has felt the growing sense that Europe is losing its claim to being a place of social cohesion, integration, and even democracy. We asked, what does an ideal Europe look like? Today, we're very lucky and happy to be joined by two of our contributors, the writers Kapka Kasabova and Jana Teller. Kapka Kasabova is the, is the author of four narrative non-fiction books, all published by Granter in the UK. Border, A Journey to the Edge of Europe, won the British Academy's Al Rodan Prize, the Saltaire Book of the Year, the Stanford Dolman Book of the Year, and the Highland Book Prize. Kapka's native Balkans are the location for both Border and her latest book, To the Lake, A Journey of War and Peace, very recently published by Granter in the UK and Grey Wolf in the US. Kapka grew up in Sofia, Bulgaria, and in the 1990s, as a young adult, she emigrated with her family to New Zealand, where she studied French and Russian literature and published her first poetry and fiction. And since 2005, she has lived in Scotland. Welcome, Kapka. Um, Jana Teller is a critically acclaimed and best-selling Danish novelist and essayist with an Austrian-German background. She has received numerous literary grants and awards, and her writing has been translated into no less than 30 languages. Jana has published six novels, including the modern Nordic saga Odin's Island, about political and religious fanaticism, and War, What If It Were Here, a book about life as a refugee, which, uh, Jana, you've ingeniously adapted uh, to each country where it's published. Jana is also a human rights activist and was one of the initiators of the 2013 Writers Against Mass Surveillance campaign. She has lived and worked with conflict resolution and humanitarian affairs for the EU and the UN in Mozambique, Tanzania and many countries across the world. Welcome to you both and thank you so much for joining us online today. It's a shame that it can't be in, in person in the studio, uh, but it's lovely to have you. Um, so that we can picture a little better, where are you both speaking from? Jana, I'll start with you. Um, I'm speaking from London. Hello, everyone. Hi, Sophie. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm living in London right now and particularly right now quarantined in London. And uh, Kapka, where are you? I'm at home in our Glen in the Scottish Highlands, um, near Inverness, 
and it's a beautiful spring's day out there and um, the sun is still shining amazingly. Good. It has been shining. We're being very, very lucky with that. It does cheer us all up on the slightly more difficult days. Um, so I'm going to begin with a question for you both. Um, with this project, did you feel one particular draw to take part in, in Europa 28? Um, was it perhaps the brief itself or the collaborative aspect or the fact that it was a project of writing by women? Perhaps we could start with you. Well, I love the idea. I loved the idea from the start of having this kind of polyphony of voices and perspectives. It's something that I do in, 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 in my writing anyway and in my sort of explorations of place you know gathering voices and perspectives and it's a very um i think it's a democratic and a sort of essential um kind of way of really approaching especially when we're dealing with with huge subjects uh, sort of mega subjects um, such as the future of europe so mm. i love this polyphony of, of women's voices Mm, absolutely and we're so used to the we're used to the idea of the european union for example being a place of poly, like a of polyphony but but not necessarily always when we receive when we receive news of it you know we'll hear from certain um certain people all, all of the time it seems to that we get always just one or two views um yana what about you what what, what was the major draw to the project I mean, I'm very staunchly pro-European. I think all of us who are mixed culturally, we can't be different because we don't belong in one country, we belong everywhere in Europe. And so, so that was one draw. Then the other, of course, is you know, to have women's voices. Women are so underrepresented in the leadership in Europe. Um, and I thought it was just fantastic to have a voice from each country, from a female perspective, maybe it can change somehow yeah, the way we look at it, maybe the agenda also. Um, and then I, you know, I'm one who thinks personally that Brexit is a disaster, not just for England, but for Europe as such, um, because the UK is, is such a strong part of Europe. And somehow there's also a different way of being together, and that is through culture. Brexit or not, I mean, the literature is still connected and interlinked as all art and culture. So I love a kind of project like that where you will see we are each one distinctly different from the other and we write in different languages and yet we have a lot in common and um, you see that polyphony it is really like a beautiful symphony of an orchestra and you you know what would the uh, clarinet be without the piano or without the violins and so this is how it comes together i feel that's lovely yeah i love that idea i was also thinking recently that um because the sadly the festival has been cancelled or postponed we're not quite sure yet because of the covid19 crisis but actually the anthology really works as a kind of festival of ideas on this theme it, it, it is a festival in of itself it's just one that people will receive in, in book format and um, but it is as you said capco and as you've just said yana it's it's a conversation um, and it was fascinating to see how people who did not in any way um converse or collaborate as they were deciding what they would write about specifically how the book does overlap but it also does thread weave together and and each text strengthens and draws on the idea of, of the next um, without overlapping in ideas so that was a real joy to watch as one of the co-editors um, 
uh, Jana, I wonder if you could read for us. Um, I'm going to have a reading to start with and then t tell us a little bit about your, your contribution to Europa 28. Thank you. Right. And I jump straight into the text because I read from the very beginning of it, then I'll tell you about it afterwards. Um, my dream for Europe is a house, a big house with many rooms, some rooms larger than others, some even huge, while some are smaller and a few very tiny indeed. The house spans several floors, has numerous staircases and a multitude of long and winding corridors. It's a magic house, both majestic and mysterious. Wherever you look, it shifts. It's made out of a panoply, a seemingly endless number of different materials, ranging from Swedish oaks over Hungarian marble to Portuguese tiles. At every turn of a hallway, there's novelty, with some parts running hushed and supple like valley meadows, some echoing the sharpness of granite, and others a kind to walking in forest or up sweetly rolling hills, while yet a few flooded aisles must be jetted across as fast-flowing river streams. The colors along the corridors go from the more grayish white and brown of the north over infinite green shades from light spring frog to dark beer bottle to red, pink, lilac, and turquoise along the waterline, all onto the more auburn and burnt sand at the southernmost tips. Some staircases spiral, others are rectangular, some appear endlessly horizontal with just a few finger widths for steps, while others rise almost vertically towards the sky. Each room is unlike any other, wondrously, fascinatingly unlike. The language differs, the music, the food, the style, the habits, the nature, the topography. Even within each room, there's still further, yes, myriads of particularities. Every time you walk a step or skew your head, your eyes will catch something they won't see elsewhere. Or may see, but in another form. Sometimes with disparities so small you can hardly depict them, only your senses would tell you they're there. What is amazing with this house is that it's at one with all its divergences. It defines itself a house of variation. A love of subtle quality is what all inhabitants of the house have in common. There's no showing off. There's a passion everywhere for the true value of the less ostentatious, of the people, of the arts, of politics, of anything and everything. The particular pride of the house is that it can hold so many contrarieties and yet be one of harmony, because all the differences are equally respected, all the many variations of subtle quality. Most respected is life, or life. The aim of the house is not to get bigger or richer, but to ensure the livability of all within as well as beyond the house. So much so that all progress is measured in the livability of humans, of animals, of trees, plants, and flowers, of the environment which it is finally recognized, human livability depends upon. So much so that no product is allowed, no activity, unless its use of or negative consequences for the natural habitat is offset in equal measure. No longer is development measured in economic growth, figures or statistics, virtual or other abstruse scopes. Livability is everything's resonance. It is understood that no true wealth exists where poverty sprawls, no happiness is possible where misery abounds, no joy where one person wins and the many lose. 
when one person is considered to be worth more than another, when different rules apply to different people, whether man or woman, old or young, white or of color, single sex or many sex, or of whichever variety they may choose to be, of one or another religion or of none, one or another culture. It is understood that the freedom of one person is sacred, so that the freedom of one person extend, extends itself as far as, yet never beyond, the mark where it infringes upon the freedom of another. Thank you so much, Jana. That's absolutely beautiful. Um, as you can hear, Jana's piece, um, your piece, Jana, is, is a work of the imagination. Of course, this is an ideal imagined Europe that we also somehow recognised. Um, but it's so lyrical, so open-hearted. But it's also, as the text goes on, on to be, it's, it's very practical in another way and also shares practicable visions for how Europe could be this ideal place. Do you believe that more imagination and open-heartedness would help us um, would, is, is needed among European bodies and leaders in order for, for, for such a place to come into being? I actually think it's needed amongst all of us. I mean, not just the political leaders, but also businesses, the population that somehow, I mean, creativity is to make the impossible possible. And when we look across now, we have a way of living uh, with these market economies, the capitalist system, and there's like this one way that seems so ingrained that it can be difficult to imagine things can be done differently. But somehow that system has become, I feel like a totalitarian ruler of all of us. Everything is commercialized, even down to relationships between human beings. Every person you deal with or have an interaction with is like, it's a means to an end and not an end in itself as it should be when we deal with each other. And I think we can change that and change it totally, but it will require imagination. Um, and it's, you know, it, I guess I have a certain advantage of having um, an education as a macroeconomist for when it comes to thinking practically then about what can be done, because maybe it's not to reinvent the wheel. Maybe we already know it. It's somehow to find a way to mix socialism and capitalism in a, you know, in a new kind of soup, but it's possible. It's, yeah. It is there. The tools are there. People of more knowledge than me have written about it, uh, like Thomas Piketty and others, of how we make a much more equally imbalanced system. Mm. And the, the one thing then that, you know, I come from, that you can say the fiction part then, and what I really add is to say, what is the priority? It's like, no, the priority is not what has been measured the last many decades or oh, the higher GDP. The real priority is to make a world that's livable for all of us. And what is the pleasure to be really rich if people are dying at your doorstep? It's, it's really unpleasant. If you have an open heart, you can't live with that. No kid likes to go by a homeless, hungry person. No. So, so that's why I feel very strongly we, we have to redefine the priority of our societies and it, but it's doable. 
Thank you. Is this to you why, as well, you mentioned earlier about how important culture is um, when you when you think about the future of Europe. Is, is, is that part of it? Is the idea that one may be perfectly comfortable in the narrow confines of their own life house existence, but the person next door can be suffering, you know, really in some cities, for example, literally on your doorstep. Is that, do you think that that's where culture comes into play in some way, that there's something that culture offers us that nurtures our empathy? Yes, because culture, of course, it depends on which form it is, but generally um, it forces us to imagine living another life than our own. And literature in particular only works if we let go of our own very particular life and for a moment emerge ourselves into wherever that text will take us, into other beings, places, or so. And therefore it gives us insights that we would not otherwise have. But it's also insights into emotions that, oh, if I was that person, a, a sick person, a weak person, or it can be a man who shall imagine a woman or a, just a person of another culture, that's how I would feel in this situation. So it enables you know, people who have never lived in war, for example, to imagine what it would be to live in war, to be a refugee if you've never been so. Uh, and therefore, we, it helps us understand each other. Because the moment you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes, you will treat that person differently. Mm. I mean, any kid knows that moment when they learn that if, when they hit somebody, it's not good because they don't like to be hit themselves. Mm. You know, so it's to extrapolating that into all aspects of life. And that's what, you know, culture and art helps us do. It works the other way, doesn't it? Sort of to see the other and to empathize with them, um, build, you know, it, to, to see them build empathy. But when we hide them, there's, there's a kind of grotesque violence to not looking at the violence, the suffering, the poverty that goes on around us. Um, I, I wanted to ask you another question um, regarding the, the, the text. Um, so your European house contains many rooms and your piece, which has incredibly rich, vivid imagery, as we said, it was really a celebration of unity and difference. Do you think as a body of people, Europeans are perhaps too unalike to achieve the collective changes you propose in the text? No, because I really believe, first of all, you know, I believe all human beings are basically the same. I mean, we'll come to it in Kafka's text, beautiful text afterwards with the lakes. And I have a picture in my mind always of a lake of universal humanity. And that's the one also one draws that when you create art and literature in particular, it's the specifics will differ, but the fact that we cry when we are sad is the same. And we all know what it feels like to be sad. We know jealousy, we know joy, you know, these feelings come up in different situations, but literature can take us there, which is why I, as a Dane, can read um, Russian literature and follow the, the characters there, or why they in China can read H.G. Anderson, um, or we can read Shakespeare today. It's because those universal feelings are the same. And of course, within Europe, we're even more the same because our cultural history is much more aligned. The differences are in the, you can say the norms very much. And of course, there are also specific historical differences to each place, but it's the norms of tradition within each little area. But you, you can manage to build that together exactly if you respect it. If, if one looks and say, people have a right to define for themselves what is important. 
if some small area their language is important or their uh, ways of uh, having festivals or the way of dressing well as long as it doesn't harm anyone we should respect that and this is possible to build together then with um looking at where do we have common interests as we do with for example things like the climate and the environment or as this corona crisis is clearly showing yes we can close the borders to each other and then not trade but europe will collapse and each country will collapse if we continue doing that but we can only solve things if we help each other anything that's larger is scale we, we have to work together to solve. And therefore also economic cooperation goes together. And, um, and of course, looking at these, you know, these bigger problems of, um, of wars across the world that create refugees or the climate crisis that create refugees, how do we deal with that? Each country alone cannot solve this. So I think in that sense, the EU is uniquely placed you know, to, to make us yeah, come together in not uh, micromanaging the lives of, of everyone. I think it's just by respecting the differences, it'll, it will come together because that, it's part of like, if you philosophically say, hey, I respect you because then the other person will also, you know, uh, respect you back or you have, it's, it's kind of, you have to have that modus as your basic for, for operation. Yeah. Well, the EU functions, doesn't it, when, when we listen to one another. Yeah. Respect, in a, in, a, in a perhaps more practical sense, is, is really to listen to one another. And, and Kapka, your work really ties into that as well. It's your, almost everything, everything, all your projects are, are, are projects that are really first and foremost listening projects. You go and you absorb other people's stories in order to gain a more kind of holistic idea of, 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 of what has happened in certain um, situations where otherwise we would just receive a kind of journalese or political view um, which can be so blinkered. Um, I have one more question Jana which sort of moves on a little bit from, from what we've been talking about but in your in your European house this ideal house life at the screen on or at the screen has been given up in favour of what you call embodied life. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you see as the dangers and perhaps specifically within European society and the freedoms that we enjoy um, of the overuse or misuse of computers and the internet and uh, artificial intelligence as well? Right. There are, of course, many layers. If I may just read here one sentence where I speak about this with the screen, I say, technology too was seen to have gone astray in life unhinging levels of obscurity. The screen between you and life is reduced living. And since there was no meaningful answer to the question of what meaningful lives humans would live if artificial intelligence able to carry out all human functions came into being, that road was abandoned in favor of the substantial. And ironically, as we sit here meeting by screen, but imagine if this event as had been originally planned, we would have been together in person. I think we would all enjoy it so much more and to be able to have the listeners in front of us instead of yeah, through a radio um, receiver. Um, I somehow think, I mean, this was written, is it almost a year ago, that the corona crisis and these quarantines that everyone is in underlines what I mean here, that yes, everyone can talk to their friends through the screen and as we do, 
but it's so reduced in the quality. And once you've done that for enough days in a row, you feel almost in your skin how you miss the biological existence near to you of other people. I really feel that by introducing this yeah, screen between us and life, yeah, it is something that comes between us and life. It's, yes, it's useful in terms of you can reach people who sit in Australia and since we can't meet in person to sit here and talk, but it has so much less value than actual physical living. The problem therefore is also, and this would go on to a big long discussion in itself, of I believe that everything bad that happens in real life, unfortunately, the door is open for an exponential um, multitude of that through the internet. What we see in terms of um, abuse, you know, of uh, children, of, you know, small girl in China uh, uh, or in Thailand get raped on screen while somebody in the Western world pays for it. The bullying that we see driving people over, you know, the edge. It's only possible because people are not right in front of the one suffering mm. because and, and that language we have seen totally deteriorate you know that women politicians are um attacked and abused uh i think also in a way that most people who would say these things would never say it if it was to the person before them but it, the screen is it's like it amputates our emotion or exactly the empathy and therefore, it has yeah, opened the door into the worst side of humanity. Um, and I would not be sad. I recognize all the advantages the internet can give us, but I wouldn't be sad if the internet, for whatever reason, went uh, or stopped working, drowned. <laughs> I, you know, I'm old enough to have known a world before this came into being. And yes, there were many things that couldn't be done. But I really believe that basically life was better. <laughs> so kind of by the by what I think I can also see for the purposes of everyone listening, Kapka's nodding too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I also feel that way. And what a strange time to feel it when we are currently having to rely on it so much. But a lot of it, perhaps it's my mind at least, is about convenience. You know, if you took away the convenience that the internet and computers afford, what would happen? I would have much longer conversations, two feet away, two meters away from them, of course, respecting social distancing, but I'd have much richer social interactions with people that I otherwise wouldn't have. I wouldn't be speaking yeah. to her in Australia, that's true, but I could write to her or him, you know. Um, yeah, and think about the letters, you know, we wrote, I lived in my early 20s, which was before the internet time, in Africa, and I wrote long letters to all my friends and received letters. And those letters I've kept in the last 20 years, what I've written of emails, they are lost somewhere. And probably most of them, particularly more recently, they're not worth keeping. And, you know, when I lived in Tanzania, there were no telephones around. And uh, at least you, you couldn't get a line. It was almost impossible. But yeah, we went to each other's houses and we did what all Africans do. You wait until people come home. And then, yeah, when you're together, you spend time together, you stay together, you do things together, uh, and then you go home again. It's like, it's such a different, but much more physical living. 
And also, if I may jump in, it, it yeah. just occurs to me because we are in lockdown, which has kind of changed our perception of time a little bit, I think. Right. But, you know, the absence of social media also meant that we experienced time differently before social media, before the, this sort of full on, you know, full time Internet living. Time and space were different. Um, and if it were to somehow magically or, you know, or tragically disappear once again, I think we might experience a different relationship with time again. Perhaps, you know, um, an existence with, with less pressure. Uh, because I do think that internet communication puts a lot of pressure on all of us. We feel that, you know, there is a form of internet FOMO, you know, fear of missing out in a lot of people, especially the generations uh, who grew up with it. They feel they have to be online. They have to be visible, audible. Um, and that puts pressure on us. Uh, we, we're so used to it. We, we don't even, you know, notice it anymore, I think. Um, no. I went off social media a few years ago at the time I bought my horse and it was exactly to get back into physical life and it's the best thing I did. I know one yeah, misses out, but you, I, don't, I feel so much more alive and present in life instead of present in that um, forced constant presentation of life. So here's a question for both of you following on from that. This world without, not even just without social media, but without the internet, would it uh, help alleviate rising nationalism and isolationism? Or do you think that it would cement it? Because often our argument for the internet is, yes, but it allows us to look at the world, to empathize. But you've been saying the opposite, Jana, that actually it's a shield to, oh, to, to empathy, that it doesn't, that, that it's no um, uh, substitute for real life interaction um, because precisely you, you don't feel with the other person. Do you think then no, a world with no internet would uh, exacerbate uh, rising nationalism or, or, or in some way help it? I mean, it's a very interesting and complex question. Uh, I thought initially with the internet that it would do away with nationalism forever. <laughs> so, um, but I was proven wrong. And now I think one must just yeah, look at all the time. Nationalism you know, has come and gone, or even before nation states existed, you can say regionalism. Um, so it's more about a mindset, a culture. But the, the problem with the internet, as I feel, is that it's very easily set. Uh, free, you know, the darker forces, those who are willing to spend their energy using it for evil purposes, generally get the, gain the upper hands. Because there are lots of good things happening, also people are communicating across culture as we're doing right now. But yeah, it's, it's somehow oddly has sparked off, or, um, or at least contributed and, and poured oil on this fuel of nationalism. So I don't think it, you know, it necessarily is the cause of nationalism, but it can be used, you know, or is being used in that direction, all kinds of extremism. Uh, Jana, and, Jana, may yes, I ask you a question? I'm just yeah. wondering as you're speaking, whether uh, in a way, uh, you know, you're talking about the dark forces and the, uh, who said that it, all it takes for the forces of evil to, to prevail, you know, for evil to prevail is for goodness to do nothing. You know, that famous phrase. Yeah. I, I just Einstein, wonder yeah. 
Yeah, I just wonder whether, um, you know, what you're describing as the dark forces is simply, um, you know, something that is, it's a form of channeling, isn't it? I think all media are really channels or tools for forces that are out there. And it's almost as if the internet is a form of religion, you know, just as religion through history has been used and abused in various forms, um, you know, starting off with good intentions, you know, with, with um, you know, with, with a revelation of, of oneness, really, all religion, from the ancient religions to the monotheistic ones, start with a vision of oneness, of right. unity and of love, you know, and look how they've been um, used, um, you know, by, by these forces of darkness, as you say. So I wonder whether, you know, our, our media at the moment, our methods of communication and channels of communication play, play a similar role. Um, it's just that sometimes the voices of, you know, the, the voices carrying the bad news or carrying, you know, th those darker sort of darker emotions are more, are louder, you know, more audible. Right. More um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's almost as if our news culture is also geared towards that darker realm of, you know, we are not given good news, really. You know, our news culture is one of unrelenting doom. negativity and gloom and doom. You know, um, yeah. we have to really sort of um, search for the, for, the, for the good news. And of course, good news is everywhere. You know, if you travel, even if you are just walking down the road in your own neighborhood, you are surrounded by goodness and by beauty and by extraordinary sort of small miracles. Uh, human and non-human, but that's not really part of our sort of daily torrent of of information. Um, no, which is why a lot of people are staying away from that, um, you know, that feed, that news feed, just to stay healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and then I can ask you also because I'm sure you must have had, as I do as a writer, period of time where you don't follow the news cycle. And my experience is I'm in a much better mood and much more at peace and in harmony. What is your experience with that? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, you know, I've heard that from quite a lot of people, writers and non-writers, who are simply more aware of how this feed of information affects them. You know, it affects your energy levels. It affects your... your um, train of thought it affects your even your um, dreaming life you know not just your waking life it affects your subconscious um, so if you become if we become aware of that we can then kind of dose our daily <laughs> feed of news or check out altogether for a while and you know um, see how see how that affects us again you know yeah. going back to that pressure of always being plugged in why why do we have to be always plugged in into the, you know, in, into this sort of turmoil, daily turmoil, which precedes the virus pandemic? You know, yeah. it's, it, this has been a kind of um, uh, a difficult balance to strike, I think, for people ever since the rise of, of mass media. Well, those who as well who are, you yeah. know, creating the technology don't want us to strike a balance. That's the other truth behind this. It's, it's, it's not an accident that we're unable to strike a balance, I think. You know, you, as Apple are so proud of saying, for example, an iPhone can be used by a child or a, or a 
90 year old lady who doesn't know how to work a computer um they are they are devices that are are, are, are absolutely and utterly captivating um and i think that 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 is a that is a for me that is one of the reasons why the the internet in some way being subdued the power and unstoppable seemingly unstoppable force of it in some way being subdued would would be up there in my ideal future <laughs> i vote for that um Kapka, can we can we hear from you a little bit about your anthology um contribution which is called two lakes you, you can either start reading from it or tell us a little bit about it um whichever you prefer 2,000 meters above sea level, a new perspective opened. To the west was Lake Ochrid, a giant blue crater. No wonder its early name was Lichnitis, Lake of Light. To the east was the higher Lake Prespa, meaning snowdrift, with its cold undertones. Ochrid is a perfect oval. Prespa is a jagged tear shape. The limestone shores of the lakes are full of medieval cave churches and niches painted with frescoes, so lifelike they almost walk off the walls. Prespa also has a companion, Mini Mi Lakelet, Mikri Prespa, but they were separated by a post-World War I border. So the mother lake is split among North Macedonia, Albania and Greece. The little one, Mikri Prespa, is in Greece, but with its tail end in Albania. From up here, you could survey the insanity of treating these ancient lakes and mountains like nothing more than a geopolitical pie, though the national borders were invisible to the naked eye. You had to know they were there. Locals, including fishermen, were prohibited from crossing into neighboring lake territory and they knew exactly where in the water the invisible lines ran and when to turn the boat back towards land. Although you could hear the Italian music of Albanian fish restaurants while having lunch on the Macedonian side, you could not just swim there or take a boat. You had to use the official checkpoint. Now do you see my guide Angelo beamed. Despite his disfigured back, the result of a paragliding accident, he didn't get out of breath. The lakes, he said, and the mountains are one complete ecological and spiritual system. The mountain ranges unfolded all the way to the Aegean in the south and the Adriatic to the west. The two lakes are connected through underground rivers that run under the mountain. Prespa above feeds Ochrid below, and by the time the water reaches the lower lake, it's filtered by the Karstic Mountain, making it Europe's largest natural body of clean water, as well as Europe's oldest lake, and the only lacustrine biosphere of this kind in Eurasia. Mikri Prespa also has the world's largest nesting colony of Dalmatian pelicans. They overwinter in Africa, and make their spectacular return in May, except for the older individuals who stay at home all year. Heaven and hell met above the lakes. The earth gave us heaven, we provided the hell. Seen from the plateau up here, the lakes were like eyes in an ancient face. 
Each generation had sacrificed its children in a war, as in a Greek tragedy, to appease some perverse god. There had been winning sides, but no winners. On the far side of Lake Prespa was a checkpoint with Greece, closed during that country's military dictatorship. For half a century, the people on each side have been banned from walking down the lakeside road into the first village on the other side, where they have relatives. Instead, they must spend half a day crossing mountainous hinterlands, passing through a remote checkpoint, traveling 170 kilometers to return to this same lakeside. Only bears and wolves roam free here. I made this journey too. You end up a couple of miles upshore from where you started, but only after much time, expense, and driving eerie mountain roads haunted by the ruined villages of the Greek Civil War. This journey of the Severed Lake Checkpoint, checkpoint this journey of the Severed Lake Checkpoint was symbolic of the zero-sum achievement of hard borders. And what are hard borders but the manifestation of a stage of sea? And what are hard borders but the manifestation of a state of siege? Thank you so much, Kabka. This is just exquisitely written. Thank you. Um, I was going to start with another question, but I hope you don't mind. I'm going to I'm going to ask because as I was listening to it, as opposed to reading it on the page, it occurred to me that two two words sprung out at me, and that was biosphere and ecosystems. And it occurs to me that in a way, what the ideal Europe that we're talking about, and um, where we feel, uh, where we collaborate as neighbours and respect one another, but also harness one another's knowledge, insights, world lives, uh, is would be would be a kind of biosphere. Um, the earth, you say, is he it provides the heaven. Um, in a way, do you do you feel that the ideal Europe would function almost more in a, in that natural way? And how how could we perhaps create that sense between our countries? Um, more generally, you know, we have the flags, the European Union flags all across Europe. Um, but what what could be some ways that could help us to to work together as an ecosystem? Yeah, I love. I mean, I re I do love um, this idea. You you know you you that you've just sort of um, encapsulated in in a single word because there are you know human ecosystems. We we are part of of various human ecosystems and various cultural biospheres and really this this separation of the human um you know the realm of the anthropocene realm and everything else on earth is is very artificial and this artificiality is catching up with us now isn't it <laughs> we really feel it and it's kind of um almost embodied by this um this virus in a way the virus i feel is is a little bit like the non-human world striking back um, and yes, I think we have disrupted the natural um, biosphere um, that we have always been part of on this um, exquisite earth of ours. And these two lakes for me really embody, you know, Jana talked about uh, the embodied life or the embodiment of, of uh, you know, of, um, living energy really. And, and for me, because I'm a writer of place, I fall in love with places and people. 
um, this, you know, this, this is an exploration of um, all of these themes through a particular place, this very ancient landscape. And as to, you know, the question of Europe, I, I, I increasingly feel that we can't, we can't discuss Europe again in isolation from what surrounds Europe, which is, you know, which is um, you know, a few other continents and a, a, few, a few rising oceans and, and, and the rest of the, the planet, really. Um, it's, it, it's, um, it's increasingly impossible, I think, to discuss the future of Europe in isolation, which is not what we're doing here. Europe has its very particular history and um, you know, it's a sort of layered, layered um, um, landscapes and human geographies, uh, unlike any other continent. But at the same time, look at this virus. It's reminding us that we are connected, that in a way borders um, only work in certain ways, but not in others. Um, Man-made borders, that is. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, um, I, I tend to see all of these big questions of the future, you know, this, even this question of the future of Europe for me is very much tied up with the past and how we understand the past. And again, to go back to Jana's um, wonderful point about embodiment, about our embodied present, how we embody that which we want to see tomorrow. Um, and that's why in the piece on the lakes, all these time lines meet, really, on top of this mountain, in this landscape, past, present and future, display a certain kind of pattern. Um, yeah. And the also, word that it's uh, very sort of at the forefront of my mind reading your pieces is, is the local. Um, a lot of your work, a lot of your writing focuses on um, a com community um, personal stories. Um, the text explores some of the effects politics has had on the land and in particular in particular in creating borders um, and, and co the consequent division as we heard in in that extract between neighbors and families and communities um, what do you feel that personal stories and the local um, do you feel that those um, are, 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 could, could be used as tools, apparatus to, to improve our lives in the future? A focus on, a focus on the local. Yeah, I really think, I believe that we, we live in a, in a holographic universe, you know, where um, these ancient um, spiritual principles apply really as, 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 as above, so below, as within, so without that we create our reality from the inside out and not vice versa. Uh, you know, to go back to our conversation about news and this sort of feed of information, it, it, it tricks us into believing that we live from the outside in. Uh, but really, it's, I think the opposite is true. We create our reality. Um, and, um, you know, to go back to this idea of borders and, and how a local, um, a, a, really a microcosm um, or a local history or a local um, ecosystem can also represent the global they're inseparable so to me really the story of these two ancient lakes and their and their peoples um, is 
yes, very specific on the one hand, it's, you know, these lakes are set in the Southwest Balkans with its very um, uh, particular and extreme history, um, this great natural beauty, but we, we can extrapolate um, into the global from that. And I think Jana was talking about the universality of human emotions. Um, I, and I really think the key to having a humane future <laughs> for Europe, but also, you know, for, um, for all of humanity is to understand, um, and it starts with ourselves, you know, it starts with the local, <laughs> uh, to understand the principles of equality better and to practice them, to understand that all humans are created equal and die equal, that nothing is really ours, that we cannot own the land that we cannot own each other <laughs> that you know that's i guess that's the principal misunderstanding of all these extreme political movements and nationalistic movements um is that this lack of understanding of of really the basic human truths um i think yeah we have to go back to these ideas of quality and that the resources are there to be shared um and to be appreciated, we just don't appreciate enough <laughs> in our lives. That ties into the, my my kind of fear that we've all that life is too convenient. I think it's that. I think convenience breeds this kind of um, yeah, it's often exceptionalism, like the sense that you sort of almost deserve all, all of the luxuries that we have um, because life is just so incredibly convenient. Um, <laughs> Yes, uh, until it suddenly isn't. <laughs> until suddenly something comes to an end and you realize that, you know, everything is finite. And I think this pandemic is, um, is um, you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a tremendous trauma and at the same time a great teacher. Um, I'm hoping that we can draw some lasting lessons of humanity from this. Um, and again, we can't talk about the future of Europe without talking about the refugees who are massed at the European borders, you know, Turkey, Greece, and Bulgaria. It's, it's the subject of my previous book, That Border. Um, and I, I started um, exploring that region in 2013, 14, just when, um, you know, refugees were beginning to walk into uh, the European Union and um, when people were compassionate to begin with. Um, so we can't, and look at it now, you know, we can't, <laughs> um, tomorrow we may be the refugees, you know, nothing is certain anymore. And I think this is a very bracing uh, lesson. Um, I think the climate changes are also teaching us that, that tomorrow, you know, I could be the one, you know, running from a burning house or a flooded house, um, falling on the mercy of strangers, or you know, trying to cross um, a hostile border. It's. I, I think it's very useful um, to 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 keep the, you know um, these things in mind um, in an ever shifting reality. Yeah. yeah. May I ask Kafka something, uh, Sophie? Um, because to link up with what you were just saying, Kapka, uh, which I totally agree with, uh, that we are caretakers of this earth um, and not the owners. And you say, if I may read the very end of your piece, which is absolutely beautiful, a lake is the opposite of a border. When you look at a barbed fence, you think of death. When you look at a lake, 
you remember that we come from water, return to water, and without water we shrivel up. And then you think of eternity and want to make amends before it's too late. I mean, it's, it's so extraordinary. And particularly when you think of the Balkans and all the wars and also the recent wars there, but you also think exactly as you were talking about humanity and what we need to do, of course, in Europe vis-a-vis -vis refugees, but also vis-a-vis -vis our planet to make amends for how we have basically raped this planet for centuries and ruined our, you know, what is the basic of our livelihood and all of nature's. But were you thinking of anything specific when you wrote that last sentence of what amends were you thinking of or was it more this larger global perspective? Yeah, thank you, Anna, for yeah, bringing that up, making amends. I don't know, I guess we have to all ask ourselves, and now we have the time, going back to the question of having more time and space, I think under quarantine, a lot of us have more time. So really, this, you know, to, to dwell on this question of how to make amends, I think on every level, you know, however you can make amends, um, you know, on an intimate, personal level in your life, um, with people, things that you have mistreated, um, and, and, you know, at the collective level as well. And if our politicians can't reflect that need, if our politicians cannot at the moment embody, um, you know, the, the necessary humility and wisdom <laughs> of these lessons, ongoing lessons, then we have to continue embodying them ourselves until there is a shift in leadership as well. And I do believe that, again, you know, we, we create our reality from the inside out. So we have to, we have to embody, um, embody the future that we want to see. Just, just as we also carry yeah. the past, you know, I really believe that's why I become fascinated by places. I, I believe that we all carry certain places in our sort of memories, almost in our ancestral and collective memory. We carry our dead. Let's not forget that all of us Europeans um, who are alive today are inheritors of great trauma from two world wars, you know, in the last 100 mm. years. Within living memory, there has been apocalypse in Europe. And the European Union, you know, and everything that Europe has achieved since the last apocalypse has been really, um, you know, built on the ashes of that. Um, and what an amazing achievement it has been. Um, mm. I have a question for you both following on from that. Kapke, in your, in your text, it does seem to me that maybe one very practical, actually, way of, of making amends would be simply not to refuse to repeat our mistakes. And that is on a personal level and on national levels. And that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't reconcile um, the mistakes that we've made. It doesn't, it doesn't take them away, but it's, um, it, it, it kind of honors uh, the idea that how we behaved in the past as Europeans or as people and, uh, was wrong and therefore we refuse to repeat those mistakes. It seems that we are at a, a sort of juncture, at least in European history, where we are making precisely the same mistakes again. I'm thinking about um, the refugee crisis. I'm thinking about Brexit and nationalism, rising nationalism here, um, the treatment of migrants in this country at the moment, uh, even the notion of a, uh, of, of a key worker um, 
who who isn't able to even stay in the country because apparently that you know they don't meet the requisites to be to be considered British to 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 to, to fit in here. Um, yeah, that's a sort of open question for either of you. I suppose the the reason why we are seeing repetitive behavior, you know, as you say, repeating the mistakes of the past. I mean, it's almost, you know, uh, you know, psychologically speaking, it's almost, it's almost the prince, the very principle of trauma, traumatic behavior is this need to, to repeat the unlearned lesson, the unlearned um, mistakes, the unlearned lessons of the past. Um, you know, in, in, in transgenerational trauma, which I'm very much interested in, um, I think anyone coming from Europe, the Balkans or Europe mm. at large, should be interested in, in transgenerational trauma because uh, we carry it. You know, that, that sums up transgenerational trauma, repetition, 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 until we learn the essential lesson. And I think, you know, fear probably has a lot to answer for in these behaviors. These, you know, the othering of refugees, of, you know, people who are, I don't know, just different. Um, it, it, I mean, it starts, it, it starts from not really being at ease with ourselves, I think, again, to apply a psychological filter to this. It starts with feeling, feeling other within yourself and then projecting that shadow. So uh, I have no easy solutions, but I think humility and honesty at the personal level is, is one positive way forward. Um. Yeah, um, I agree with that. It's, I worked a lot also um, yeah, on reconciliation and how, how do you reconciliate societies. And um, one of the things, it's not just yet to learn from the past and about it, but also to learn the right lessons. Because when we all talk about the Second World War and talk about, okay, Nazism was so bad and but then often people don't see but what were the human mechanisms that actually led to narcissism. A lot of people want to belong. Uh, it's a very strong biological, probably a survival kind of drive for us to belong in a group because then we are safer. And therefore people are also willing to often forget what they would normally think of right and wrong if the group they belong to go in a certain direction. And that was the problem with Nazism, was not that you had one psychopathic leader called Hitler, but that each person within the system, you know, or the society, stopped asking themselves if their actions were right or wrong. Uh, because, you know, most Germans uh, who were participating in Nazism would never have killed a Jew if it wasn't that the system around them said that's the thing to do or participate in whatever process, you know, where their job were. And that's always the same when you see totalitarian systems function. You know, 99% of those, or at least 95%, they're not psychopathic killers, haters or so. They just want, first of all, the, uh, to survive themselves, and therefore they go with the success criteria of the group. And that's why some of these heinous leaders are successful because they understand that mechanism. And yeah, they use fear as can say, but they use the fear of not belonging in your group. If you don't put that Jew on the train, or for us, it's if you don't hold out those Muslims, or, you know, it has even come to the point, if you help somebody drowning in the Mediterranean, you'll go to jail. I mean, how has Europe come to that? <laughs> this is so against everything we believe in. 
Um, but somehow this has become accepted. So you are the bad guy now if you help someone drowning just because they happen to be from the other side of the Mediterranean. No, so, so with the human compass, when um, if the North Star is set in a normal democracy, it doesn't matter so much people don't have their own because they're thinking, you know, you will do the right thing, you won't steal because then other people can all steal and, and you will follow some kind of basic um, rules for human coexistence. The problem when extremism uh, rules or an autocracy is building up is that those rules are set out of function and suddenly the group moved towards it can be racism as we see growing misogyny um, extremism of all kinds become acceptable and then the new north star is suddenly something that will make people behave in a way they wouldn't think right if they really thought it through themselves but somehow they just follow the group's north star so my thinking, if we shall make a more livable society, and I totally agree with Kapkes that, you know, it comes back to the personal. We can make such big difference if we just change ourselves, even when we're not the big politician or the big um, business owner. So if each one of us will look at what our compass is set by, what is our North Star? If we put that North Star right where humanity is and real human values, we will change the world. Each one of us can do that on our own and put the North Star in the right place. And then we'll have a much better world, I think. Thank you so much, Jan. And I think that you have encapsulated an idea that runs throughout the whole anthology. Um, and uh, thank you so much as well, Kapka, for, for your wonderful contributions. And thank you, Sophie. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Common Press podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And our thanks to Arts Council England, Hay Festival and the Womarts Project, co-funded by Creative Europe Programme. Storgy seeks to publish and promote exceptional literary short fiction. We take pride in discovering new and emerging talent, so if you have a story, visit us at storgy.com. Discover the macabre secrets of the eerie town of Shallow Creek, blast into dystopian worlds with Exit Earth, or find the blackened husk of the American dream with Roger McKnight's Hopeful Monsters. Competitions with cash prizes and merchandise that any book lover will cherish? Check out storgy.com today.